Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Lawina ta'alamu wa ta'alimu wa tathakura wa tathkir wa nafa'a wa l-intifa'a wa l-ifadat wa l-istifada. Al-hath ala tamasuki bi kitabillahi wa sunnati wa rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. والدعاء إلى الهدى والدلالة على الخير ابتغاء مرضات الله ووجهه وقربه وثوابه اللهم افتح علينا بحكمتك وانشر علينا برحمتك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام اللهم علمنا من علمك ما ترضى به عنا ولا تؤاخذنا بما تعلمه منا يا حليم حققنا بحقائق العلم بسمنا كي so we are on session number two of the inner secrets of worship and as we had mentioned in the last session this is uh, taken from a work by Imam Ibn Qudama Al-Maqdisi, Muwafaq al-Din there's many Ibn Qudamas but this is Muwafaq al-Din Ibn Qudama and it is from his work called Mukhtasar Minhaj al-Qasidin The abridgment of the way of those who are seeking God And it has been translated into four separate books The first book being entitled Inner Secrets of Worship Inner Secrets of Worship by Ibn Qudam So now we're on uh, the second session and on the second section of the first part of the book The first part of this book deals with the virtues of knowledge and its people. Okay. So, Bismillah. Qal al Musannifu, Rahimahullahu Ta'ala, wa Nafa'anullahu Iyahu bi Ulumihi fi Darin Amin. Seeking knowledge is obligatory. Anas ibn Malik, Radiallahu Ta'ala, who narrated that the Prophet said, It is obligatory on every Muslim to seek knowledge. Reported by Ahmed in Al Ilal. Hmm. Which is not actually uh, There's some comments on it But it's obligatory on every Muslim to seek knowledge Talabul ilmi faridatun ala kulli Muslim Prophet said Seeking knowledge is obligatory on every Muslim uh, The author said The scholars differ regarding the types of knowledge referred to in this report The jurist, meaning the fuqaha Said it refers to the knowledge of jurisprudence with which the lawful and the unlawful are known. So basically, the people whose specialization is fiqh, they said that this obligatory knowledge is fiqh. <laughs> Big surprise, right? So like it's to know what's halal and what's haram. The scholars of tafsir and the scholars of the hadith, they said it refers to the Qur'an and sunnah, with which people can reach all the different knowledge that they need. The people of spirituality said it refers to the knowledge of sincerity and the defects of the soul, matters of ikhlas and afat and nufus. And the philosophers say it refers to the knowledge of kalam. It's an interesting translation. I'm not inclined to believe that he used the word the philosophers. Maybe he did because it's Ibn Qudama. It's hard to say without seeing the Arabic. But anyways, these people said it's Ilm al-Kalam. Ilm al-Kalam is a, like a, 
basically theology, like philosophical theology, right? Like, why do we believe what we believe, and how do we respond to other people, and all of these kind of things. Ibn Qudama generally took a very uh, minimalistic approach to matters of theology. So he's from the camp that is basically like, we believe whatever Allah told us to believe, and whatever the Prophet told us to believe, and we don't go beyond that. <laughs> we don't ask questions, we don't talk about it, we don't think about it, we don't need to argue with other people in very much detail at all, just keep it really simple. But the other approaches were different. There's good in everything. These, are, these and other opinions have been given regarding its meaning, but none of them are satisfactory. The correct interpretation is that it refers to that which a person ought to observe and fulfill to please his Lord. Meaning, what it refers to actually, and did we cover this in the, no, we didn't cover this here. Seminary people know this, okay? Here's a pop quiz for seminary people. Who's in, this, who's in the Medjus Seminary? You don't have to be advanced, just the first class. First class, two classes, three classes. Okay, what is the obligatory knowledge that's re that's required? When the hadith says obligatory knowledge, seek knowledge. It's required on every Muslim. What is it referring to? Pop quiz. Fardun Ain. Yeah, and he uses a term in the in the in the text. Anyone? Ilm al Hal calls it Ilm al Hal or Wajib al Waqt. So it's the obligation that would come to the person in the moment. So what's, say someone becomes a Muslim. The immediate obligation upon them is, how do I make wudu? How do I pray? Because that's the first thing that's going to happen. I have to know how to do that. If they get a job and they start to have money, they have to know. Now the obligation of the rules of zakat becomes required on them. If they're able to make hajj, then they make hajj. Now it's required for them to know that. If they're working in a job, whatever rules are necessary for them to know, working in that job, they're required to know that. And matters of spirituality, they're also required to know. They're required to know that I'm not supposed to be a jealous person. I'm not supposed to be an arrogant person. I'm not supposed to hate on other people. I'm not supposed to be like this and this and this and this. And I need to. All of those are immediate obligations on the person. So they're fardain. It's true. Those are fardain things. They're individual obligation things. And the term that's usually used is wajib al waqt. In the book he uses Ilm al-Had, the seminary book that we covered, he uses Ilm al-Had, but it's also called Wajib al-Waqt, the obligation of the moment. So this is what Ibn Qudam is saying here. Why did I bring this sidebar? So that you can see there's a correlation between the way things are talked about over spans of several hundred years and different places and stuff like that. You'll find the same concepts being discussed. This conduct of which the servant is responsible has three categories. Namely, that which they must believe in i'tiqad, that which they must do in fi'al, and that which they must refrain from in tarq. When a child reaches puberty, the first obligation upon him or her, her is to learn the testimony of faith, to learn the shahada and what it means, even if that does not come about through analyzing the evidence. They just need to know. Okay, we say, Ashadu la ilaha illallah. And we say, Ashadu anna Muhammadan Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this is what it means. It means that there's no God but Allah. And Allah is the one Lord. And He has no beginning. He has no end. He has no partners, no similarity, no need. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the sustainer of everything that exists. You know, you know, 
And we know that the Prophet ﷺ is the Prophet ﷺ, that he's the final messenger, that he conveyed completely the message that he was given, that he's described with the utmost qualities of truthfulness and trustworthiness, and uh, so on. This is, you know, and so that's the shahadatain. And he says, this is because the Prophet ﷺ was content with the affirmation of the simple Bedouins that was not preceded by teaching them the evidence. This is the obligation of that specific time, though he is obliged to look into the evidence later. What does this mean? It means that someone might come and they believe in Islam. You teach them the shahada. They say the shahada. Maybe they didn't, you know, like when I first became Muslim, I remember actually specifically one roommate asking me, because I lived with, of course, uh, like all non-Muslims, you know, people I grew up with actually. And I told them, like, you know, uh, I'm not going to come out <laughs> to whatever else they were doing. And I'm just going to stay in the room. And they're like, why? I was like, because I'm a Muslim. I'm Muslim now. And they're like, okay. <laughs> like, we, didn't, we didn't know about this. And I was like, yeah. I'm like, all right, fine. And then, uh, and then one of the guys was like, so why? And I was actually not really capable of giving him a very good answer at that moment in time. I was like, I don't know, I just believe in it. And he was like, all right. <laughs> it's really interesting, like people won't, if, if you don't give them space to push you, oftentimes people won't push you, you know? Three out of four, three, uh, two, uh, two out of three didn't ask in the first place. They're like, oh, it's the first time we're hearing about it, but okay, you're a Muslim, khalas, okay, it's fine, it's done. We're not talking to him about it. And then the third one was like, why? And I didn't really have anything to say. But he could tell that it wasn't going to go any further than that, so it was done. Yeah, so, anyways, I wasn't able to answer it. Of course, afterwards you read and you study and you understand and you're able to answer something in a little bit more detail. You're able to articulate something. But it is what he's trying to say here is that there's Bedouins who came to the Prophet They didn't have some really sophisticated, detailed understanding of Islam. They had an understanding that Allah is God and that this man is the Prophet of God. So the Prophet gave them shahada. They take the shahada, they become Muslims. And now they're going to learn step by step what they need to learn, they're going to learn. Uh, so he says, this is the obligation of that specific time, though he is obliged to look into the evidence later. So again, you get this idea of wajib al-waqt. So the wajib of that time, the obligation of that moment was, you teach them a shahada. And that was all that was required of them in that moment. And as time passes now, the requirement upon them will shift. And they'll have to learn more. It won't be sufficient for them anymore. So for example, someone might grow up as a Muslim, and it's very simple. Give them very simple understanding of Islam. Who is Allah? Who is the Prophet? It's fine. Then they start to get a little bit older. They get maybe into like high school. Definitely if they're going to go to a university, they get into college. Now they start dealing with a whole bunch of different ideas. So maybe the obligation of them in the beginning in terms of beliefs was very simple. But once they get exposed to secularism and liberalism and all of these other isms and philosophy and Western thought and all of these doubts that people bring against Islam and all of these kind of things, now just by them going into a university, the obligation for them to learn Aqidah completely shifts. Now they have to actually learn much more for most people. Otherwise they'll lose their deen. They won't actually be able to stand intellectually against the things that they're coming up against. So it changes. The wajib and waqt changes. Then when the prayer time comes, he is obliged to learn how to purify himself and how to pray. 
If he lives until Ramadan, right? It's not, it's not guaranteed. Allahumma balighna Ramadan. Allahumma balighna Ramadan. If he lives until Ramadan, now he's required to learn how to fast. As a, as a technicality, right? When does that become, technically, technically, like probably the night before Ramadan, now you really have to know the rules. Because I need to make intention that I'm going to fast the next day and there's certain rules I have to know and okay, now I'm going to. So they, they live until Ramadan, they have to know the rules of how to fast. And if they own property for a lunar year, is obliged to learn the rules of zakat. If the time of the pilgrimage hajj comes and he is, un, and he is able to perform it, he is obliged to learn the rules that pertain to it. So that's all in regards to the things that a person does. So he said there's beliefs, there's things a person does, and there's things a person... What are the three obligations he said? I'm doing an Azhari style with you. This is an Azhari style. It catch you sleeping all the time. There's the three things he said. You have to know the obligations of belief, you have to know the obligation of action, and you have to know the obligation of abstinence. Tark, fi'al and tark. I'tiqad fi'al tark. I'tiqad fi'al tark. That's the categorization he's using. We're not going to do actual Azhari style. Okay? Actual Azhari style is every two minutes you ask one of those questions, and then if you get it wrong, you get made fun of. We're not, <laughs> we're not, we're not going to do that. Right? So, the, with respect to abstinence, the obligations depend on one situation. For a blind person is not obliged to learn the things that are unlawful to look at. And a mute person is not obliged to know what one must not utter, utter with his tongue. What is he saying? There's obligations on the eye. There's things I'm not allowed to look at. But if the person is blind, this obligation doesn't apply to them. This abstinence doesn't apply to them. They don't have to worry about it, actually. If a person is, there's obligations that I have in terms of things that I don't speak about. Abstinence with regards to my speech. If the person is unable to speak, thank you. If the person is unable to speak, then they don't have to, that's not obligatory for them to know. It's not obligatory for them to know. Question here is not whether or not they should know it. Question is, is it actually, what does it mean obligatory to know? When he's saying this, it's obligatory for them to know. What is he saying? Hmm? It's, a it's a sin if you don't. He's saying it's a sin if you do not. Okay? Is he saying that a blind person shouldn't know the rules of the stuff that he is looking at and not looking at? He's not saying that. He's saying, is he sinful if he doesn't know this? Okay, this is, this is the issue. Uh, if one is in a country where people are accustomed to drinking wine and wearing silk, he is obliged to learn that these things are unlawful. Okay. With respect to beliefs, the obligations depend on passing thoughts. Mm. With respect to beliefs, the obligations depend on passing thoughts of doubt as to what the two words of the testimony of faith mean. It would be obligatory upon him to acquire the knowledge of whatever would remove that doubt. If he is in a land where blameworthy innovations are practiced, he is obliged to learn the truth. Similarly, if he were a merchant living in the land where the practice of usury was prevalent, it would be obligatory to warn him against usury. So again, what is the idea? The idea is a person might be in different. One person might be in a place. I always tell this story, but to me it was, it was like one of those... Uh, there's got to be a good word for that. Like a story that informs the way you look at things. 
Uh, one time I was, uh, when we were living in Egypt, I went to Fajr prayer, okay? And alhamdulillah, I went early. And there's a lot of people that go early. So someone's there early, you know, and everyone who's sitting down waiting for Fajr prayer, and they're just reading Qur'an, you know, and, and making dhikr, and mostly Qur'an, people are reading Qur'an, waiting for Salat. And I'm sitting next to this guy. And eventually he, he turns to me and he asks me, <coughs> usually what I, what I saw in, in Egypt was that the prayer time is not based on a particular time. You know, like here we say Salat is at 6.15 a.m., right? Or 6 a.m. or 5.45 or something like that. They don't say that. Usually Fajr was either 20 or 30 minutes after the Adhan. That's how the time was. It's usually X amount of time after the Adhan. Dhuhr was 15 minutes after Adhan. Maghrib is 5 minutes after Adhan. Isha is 20 minutes after Adhan. Fajr was usually 30. Okay? So I'm, I'm sitting and the man, he, he turns to me and he asks me in Egyptian Arabic, when is the Iqamah? Like when is the, not Iqamah, they wouldn't say that actually. When, when is the Salah? And uh, so I answered him, and obviously I'm, I'm not Egyptian, right? So, and this was earlier in my study, so <clears throat> not only was I not Egyptian, there was no way I could pass even for a word or two. Right? There's, later on I could pass for two words, but <laughs> I have to, in the beginning can't pass at all, right? So as soon as I open my mouth, the guy just looks at me, he's like, where are you from? And I said, I'm from America, you know, which is how you would say it there, although you shouldn't say that here, just for the record, you know? Because the United States of America is not America. North America and South America and Central America are all America. <laughs> don't, don't erase the rest of the Western Hemisphere. It's a very American thing to do. A very United States of American thing to do. So uh, anyways, I told him America, that's what he would understand. I said America. He said, okay. He said, you're Muslim? <laughs> and I started laughing. Because <laughs> I'm like, we're sitting here for the last 15 minutes before Fajr prayer, reading Quran next to each other. You know, like, <laughs> what else am I? Like, Mukhabarat? Maybe, I guess. It could be CIA. So, uh, he's like, Muslim? And I said, yeah. And he's like, MashaAllah. And then uh, he's like, Alhamdulillah. I said, yeah. And then I said, uh, somehow it came up like I wasn't always Muslim, you know? And he was like, okay, so what were you? And I said, I was nothing, you know? Like I didn't have any religion, I was nothing. And he just looked at me and he was completely shocked. And he was just like, Zay. You know, it was the most sincere, shocked question, and it was so beautiful. He just looked, he's like, Zay, how is that even possible? You know? And I, and I was like, wow, this is a different, two different worlds are colliding with each other right now, you know? He just, he's like, how is that even possible? I said, it's totally like normal where we are, people don't have religion. And he's like, oh. And then his second question also was funny. He's like, so what do they put on your ID card? Because <laughs> in Egypt, your religion is on your ID card. <laughs> Basically, you're either Muslim or Christian. It's on your ID card, right? Because certain rules in the law can shift depending on what your religion is. So he's like, what do they write on your ID card? I'm like, we don't have religion on our ID card in the first place in America. He's like, wow. You know, it was like this mind-blowing conversation. What was amazing to me is that 
he couldn't even understand the concept of someone who doesn't have a religion. How is it related? Because he's saying the obligation can change. Like for this guy, uh, I'll give you another story, it's a funny one. It's, it's gonna tie in. When we were in, in the college, and Sheikh Suhail Mullah was with us in the college. You guys know Sheikh Suhail Mullah from uh, Khalil Center, LA, he used to be the Imam of Garden Grove Masjid. And we were together in university. <coughs> Sheikh Suhail is a little bit older than me, probably like maybe 10 years older than me. So when we go to the university, he's clearly an older person, right? He's got like a little bit of gray, he's probably in his uh, like late 30s maybe at that time. And everyone else is 18, 19, especially the Egyptians. Foreigners are not, but the Egyptians are like 18, 19, stuff like that, right? So they would kind of look at him like, he's this older guy, we can talk to him. You know, this is beautiful, subhanAllah. And so one time this student comes up to him and he tells him, he's like, you know, Sheikh, they would call him Sheikh. They're like, I'm having a really hard time studying. I, I can't study and I, I don't understand what's happening. And he's like, okay, so what's your life like? And he's like, I wake up and, uh, you know, I do whatever I need to do in the field. And then I come to the school, I, I come to Cairo, I go to class, and then I go back to my little town, and I have, you know, things to do at, on the farm, basically. And he's like, so then what happens? He's like, then I sit down to like study, I might sit down on the field, and I sit down to study, and I just, I can't concentrate. And Sheikh Sohail was joking with him. He was like, what happens? Do you like start just thinking about the cows and the animals and stuff like that? And he just looked at, he was joking. And then the, the guy looked at him, he's like, yeah, actually, that's what happens. It's like a very simple life, you know? <laughs> like the guy, he's like a farmer, like, you know? You go and you sow some crops, you put them in the ground, you take care of the cows, hang out with the chickens. And like, that's your life, you know? So he's like, I'm sitting down to study these books and fiqh and stuff like that, and I just can't. And he's like, I started thinking about the cows and like, what's going on? <laughs> you know? So this person, my point is, this person, are they obligated to understand like the details of Western philosophy and what happened with the Enlightenment and how that affected Western thought and how it brought on secularism and what that means for the understanding of religion in the Western world and how Muslims are affected by that even if they don't realize it and like all of this. Are they required to know that kind of stuff? He's not required to know that kind of stuff, right? But maybe someone who goes to college in America, might, maybe not like the, all the details of it, but they probably need to understand like some, some, uh, some broad strokes of that. At the same time, in America, there's some people, they don't need to know that. You know, maybe someone like has a very simple life and uh, they just go to work, they take care of their family, they don't really have any doubts. It's clear as day to them that God exists. It's clear as day to them that the Prophet was the Prophet. And it doesn't bother them. So they're not required to know it. So what is he saying? He's saying the requirement of what a person knows depends on the kind of thoughts that come into their head. And based on what thoughts come into their head, then if they have doubts, they have to respond to it. Anyways, belabored way of saying that. He must also learn the knowledge related to faith, the resurrection, paradise, and hell. Many of these things are in very, uh, <coughs> very short works. Uh, I'm going to make a comment. Uh, and the footnote here, 
It says, as well as other matters of theology, Imam Tahawi collected them in a single work, and Imam Ibn Abul Iz al Hanafi wrote a commentary on his book titled Sharh al Aqidah al Tahawi. If we were to open this in detail, it would take probably too long and maybe be out of the scope of what I can do on the top of my head. But since this is, since I told you, I, since I'm reading from this translation, and other people might pick up this translation, uh, I should probably be clear that I may not agree with a lot of things that are in the footnotes. So this footnote, for example, this is, I would definitely encourage people to study the Tahawi Aqidah, the Aqidah of Imam Tahawi, definitely a very good text to study. And at the same time, you should know that the commentary of Ibn Abul Aiz and Hanafi is not an accepted commentary on this text, like by classical scholars. This is a, a like a fringe, in a sense, commentary. It doesn't, and it's really interesting because the people who like this commentary are not usually so into medhebs. Okay, I just want you. To, this is very fascinating. They're not usually so into medhebs, like study the Hanafi school, study the Maliki school. They're not really into that. Usually, these kind of people they like this commentary. And yet, whenever they mention this commentary, they always refer to him as Ibn Abul Aiz and Hanafi. It's a very interesting uh, thing. You know why? Any time anyone else is mentioned, their medhab is never mentioned. Only him, his madhab is mentioned. Why? Are you trying? I don't know. You know, we shouldn't make a bad opinion of people, but are you trying to make it seem as if his commentary is an accepted commentary within the framework of the Hanafi school? Because it's not. And why that matters is because Imam al-Tahawi is, he says very clearly in the beginning of his text, this is the aqidah that I am sharing, and it is the aqidah of the imams, the fuqaha, which are Abu Hanifa, Abu Yusuf, and Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. And Imam al-Tahawi is a mujtahid imam in the Hanafi school. So what is he He's saying? This is the aqidah we took from Abu Hanifa. And he's a representative of the school of Abu Hanifa. And 800 years of people after him, also people who represent the school of Abu Hanifa, they made commentary on this text in a particular way. This particular person, Rahimahullah, Ibn Abi Naiz, he didn't do that actually. He made commentary on this text more from the perspective of Ibn Taymiyyah than the perspective of the scholars of uh, Aqidah and Fiqh. So why is he getting this appellation here? Allahu Ta'ala A'la Wa'alam Sallallahu Alaihi Let's go home. <laughs> I don't know. But my point in saying this is I would not actually encourage you to study that commentary on the text. Study it from someone else. There's, a few, there's many commentaries on the Aqidah Tahawiyah. Some of them are uh, you know, more or less acceptable. This one became very popular in the West because of a number of different reasons. But in like classical Islamic studies circles, this would basically not be a commentary that you study. Um, mostly people, uh, now it's a later commentary, but the one that most people use is that of Al-Maydani, uh, Sahib al-Lubab, he's a Syrian scholar, Rahimahullah. Uh, he was, Maydani was the, the student of Ibn Abidin, who was like the last major muhaqqiq of the Hanafi school. Anyways, this is a sidebar.
It is thus clear that seeking of knowledge that is individually obligatory is that which one must currently know. As for communal obligations, so fard ayn is the obligation of the moment. As for communal obligations, fard kifaya, they are everything without which the world cannot be sustained. Look at that definition. Amazing. This is the worldview of the Muslims. The worldview of the Muslims is it is required upon the Muslim community to, uh, to acquire any knowledge by which the world must be sustained. Amazing. Right? Any knowledge by which the world must be sustained, that knowledge is required to acquire. Okay? Which would include such things such as medical science, which is necessary in maintaining our bodily health, mathematics, which is necessary in disposing inheritance, willed property, and other such things. Uh, of course, in our world, there's a lot of those things. Maybe in, yeah, it's interesting they say about Imam Ghazani, right? He died in just after 500 after Hijra, so 900 years ago. They say Imam Ghazani basically knew everything there was to know in his time. Imagine, like all the major disciplines of knowledge that you could know, he had, he had some understanding of them. He knew philosophy, and he knew medicine, and he knew probably something about construction. He knew something about this and that, and so on, like all of these different things. Of course, now that's impossible. It's not possible for someone to do that. But uh, the point is that we need a lot of things to live. We need electricity. We need plumbing. We need city planning. We need uh, medicine. We need engineering. We need psychologists. We need war strategists. We need all kinds of things, right? We need computer scientists, obviously. You need a lot of different things are needed in order for the world to exist. Um, and all of those things are required from a Muslim community. A Muslim community is supposed to get for itself all the knowledge that's needed for itself to build its own civilization. That's actually the requirement of the Muslim community. If a country is void of people who know these things, it's probably not country. Yeah. I might stop using translation, but I don't want to make you guys bored by reading Arabic all the time. I don't think this is country. It's probably land. Belid. Right? It's probably land. Belid in modern Arabic, they use it for country. But it's not really country. right? We understand country to have these borders and stuff. It's not like that. It's pre-modern. So you live in a, a land that's kind of like geographically contained. right? Not because there's a border around it, because this is where the people live. And then there's a point where people are not living there anymore. It's the next town or whatever else. So your town needs whatever is needed in order to live. Oh, thank you. Nice. Thank you. This is perfect. I don't know what it is. Cool. Alhamdulillah, I had... Um, a trip yesterday. I left Friday night to the bay and I came back last night and I spoke a lot more than I usually speak in 36 hours <laughs> so, or 24 hours actually. And uh, so this is perfect drink, mashallah. If a country or a land is void of people who know these things, the entire population is sinful. But if a single person learns them, the rest are no longer obliged to learn them. This is the definition of a communal obligation in Islam. Communal obligation is 
Sakata Andu and Kun. Sakata An and Kun. Where either Lamyakum be here about Athima and Kun. That if someone, if some people do it, everyone is freed from it. And if nobody does it, then everyone is sinful. This is the, the ruling on it. Okay? So he's saying if nobody does if someone does it, then everyone's okay. That being said, no one should find it strange that we categorize medicine and mathematics as communal obligations because basic professions like farming, weaving, and even cupping are all communal obligations as well. After all, if a, if a land is void of a cupper, it is not far from being ruined. Indeed, he who sent us the disease also sent us the medicine and guided us to use it. Okay, this cupping was like a major medical intervention in the time in the time of these people. You know, they would do this all the time, and uh, they understood it to be beneficial for the body and so on. Prophet ﷺ, of course, also did this. So, what is he saying? He's saying that this is uh, these things that are needed for people to be well are required. Why am I kind of emphasizing this a little bit? We sometimes have this idea in the Muslim community that everyone needs to be a religious scholar in order to be pious. This is a very wrong understanding. Not everyone needs to be a religious scholar in order to be pious. Religious scholarship is an area of specialization like other areas of specialization. Uh, somewhat like. <laughs> Obviously, if it's similar, if the area of specialization is taking it based on the Qur'an and the Sunnah of the Prophet it has a special merit, of course. But on community life, all of these things are required and all of these things are needed. And then what is going to distinguish between people is essentially the quality of their character. Right? So the religious teacher is not necessarily better than the farmer. The religious teacher is not necessarily better than the dentist. The religious teacher is not necessarily better than even the taxi driver, right? The one who's better is the one who has more taqwa. And if they have the same level of taqwa, then perhaps the religious teacher is going to be higher in rank because the honor of that profession, right? But the taqwa is the real issue. What is their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So for like the average Muslim, it's one of the things I appreciate about our teachers, our spiritual teachers, is that they always emphasize that the way to spiritual improvement is not actually through knowledge. It's not that knowledge is not beneficial. Obviously, we get basic knowledge and it helps us as a reminder and so on. But the way to spiritual improvement is through loving people and serving people. All of us are equal in that. All of us have an ob uh, obligation to love the people in our lives and to, to help them and to support them and to serve them and to forgive people. And, so how do I get closer to Allah? It's not, yes, inshallah, any good thing that we do is a way to get closer to Allah, for sure. Like anytime someone studies the life of the Prophet inshallah, it's a way to come closer to Allah. But we shouldn't understand like, I'm automatically inferior because I didn't get this religious training or something. And, and, and if I get that religious training, now I'm gonna like automatically level up in my religion, not necessarily. And those of us who s spend some time studying, we know and understand that very clearly. Because you meet a lot of people, may Allah protect us, that seeking knowledge actually makes their heart harder. Their heart ends up more 
rigid after they seek knowledge. They spent all their time in fiqh. They spent all their time in falsafa and kalam and stuff like this, you know. And all, it, it just makes your heart hard. It's like you're learning the details of law. Maybe, you know, okay, there's this and there's this and there's this opinion and this is how you get around this. And okay, so it doesn't necessarily make your heart soft. So we have to always remind ourselves of this. As for deep and detailed study of mathematics and medicine, that is additional knowledge because the people can manage without it. So the first layer is what has to be, the people absolutely have to have this thing, that has to be acquired. The level above it maybe is not required in, in the same way. Uh, but it's still important for people to do. Some disciplines are merely permissible, such as the knowledge of poetry that does not contain nonsense, and the knowledge of history. Uh, you know, you, you might disagree with him on some of these. You can argue in different ways. Like someone could argue, for example, that in trying to understand and function as a modern state, it's impossible to do that without a knowledge of history. You could, you, I think you could legitimately argue that. In which case, the ruling would change, and he would agree with you. He would say, okay, yeah, actually, that does need to be known. But if like, you live in a village, you know, I remember one time, subhanAllah, I was visiting uh, my aunt. She didn't die as a Muslim, so we'll just leave her state with Allah. But she said something funny. We were talking. She, like, where my mom came from is a very small place. Okay? Very small place. Especially before modern roads and transportation and stuff like that. Like, you live in your neighborhood and you are never going to leave your neighborhood. It's, and it's a really harsh place. So, we were in the, t the town they're from, which is called Clark's Beach. And then there's a river. And there's North River and there's South River. They're all separate towns in these people, in, in their heads, right? But if I was to tell you, like, literally, if, if we're in Clark's Beach right now, the park is basically South River. <laughs> like the park right there. <laughs> and the whatever's on the other side of the street. Like Balboa International for sure is like actually not even North River, it's beyond North River, okay? And we were having this conversation and she was like, yeah, you know, but they're from North River and, you know, they're a little bit different than the people who are from South River. <laughs> And I was like, subhanAllah, you know, like, if we walked there, it would take 15 minutes, you know, it's, it's really that close. And, but, so like, if you lived your whole life like that for a couple generations, is it really necessary for you to learn history? Maybe not, you know, but uh, maybe you just know how to paint a fence and like, grow root vegetables and survive the winter and do some fishing. And like, you, you know what to do in order to survive. But the point is, these things can change. Uh, some disciplines are blameworthy altogether, like knowledge of sorcery, like, you know, ilm uh, sihr talismans, tansamat. That's actually really interesting. Uh, talismans here, um, notice, it's good that they put the Arabic there, actually. It, the word he used was not ta'weed. That's a whole different conversation. It's a tansamat. It's like pure sorcery type things, uh, and spells. However, Islamic knowledge with all its branches and sciences are praiseworthy. It is divided into fundamentals, usul, branches, furu'ah, and introductory, muqaddimat, and supplementary, mutammimat, disciplines. 
Okay, so this is the different, there's different ways to categorize the Islamic studies disciplines. This is the one that he's using here, and he's going to break down each one. That will be the end of the section, and we'll stop, inshallah. The fundamental disciplines, usul, are the book of Allah and the sunnah of the Prophet the consensus of the scholars and the statements of the companions. What does it mean by usul? Like these are the things that everything else is based upon. What is everything else based upon is the Qur'an, the sunnah, and the consensus of the scholars, and the statements of the Sahaba. Because the Sahaba are, their understanding of the Qur'an and Hadith is far more important than ours because they lived it and they understood it and they saw it okay so these things he's also Hanbali this is a Hanbali point uh, Hanbalis are very similar to Hanafis in this people think the Madhabs are like very clearly delineated they're not so clearly delineated this issue of Athar uh, Hanbalis are very similar to Hanafis on I'm Hanafi as you know but I flirted with being Hanbali studied it for about two years, and then I decided I'm going to stay Hanafi. So uh, there's some similarity here. Uh, the branches, the furua, are the meanings derived from these sources, some of which are understood from the obvious wordings and others which are understood through other means. For example, it is understood through analogy from the Prophet's words, sallallahu alayhi wa them, the judge must not judge when angry, that the judge must not also judge when hungry. So the asl point is the judge cannot judge when angry. The fara, the, the side point is the judge can also not judge when hungry because they're similar. But it's not established in the text, it's taken from the text. So it's like a step further. Okay? The introductory disciplines, muqaddimat, are the tool sciences like grammar and linguistics for these are the tools whereby the Book of Allah and the Sunnah of His Messenger are understood So for example, knowing the Arabic language, knowing usul al-fiqh, the method of deriving rules from the text, these are like uh, hadith sciences, these are tools that enable us to deal with the foundations. Okay? Uh, Al-Azhar famously, this is always the emphasis of an Azhar, it's always on the tools. And uh, one of our teachers, he, he really emphasizes to us that in your days as a student, you focus on the tools. Because if you master the tools, then you can apply them to the foundational things for the rest of your life. But if you don't master the tools in the time when you have the time to do that, then you'll always make mistakes for the rest of your life. So you'll always find like the classical Azhari is really strong in the tools, usually in the Arabic language, in logic, and in usul fiqh. These are like the disciplines, and then everything else kind of becomes easy after that, so to speak. Uh, and the supplementary disciplines are like the knowledge of the Qur'an recitations, qira'at, pronunciation and articulation of Arabic letters, makharij and huruf, and the names, credibility, and conditions of hadith narrators, Asma'at Rijal, Asma rijal al-Hadith. Uh, these are the Islamic sciences, and all of them are praiseworthy. Well, again, as a Hanbali, he has kind of like a uh, more focused take on the Islamic sciences. So that ends section two, inshallah, we'll stop here. Section three is very interesting, the knowledge of devotional practice. First line says, the knowledge of devotional practice deals with the states of the heart, and that includes the states of fear, hope, contentment, truthfulness, and sincerity. This is the knowledge that raised the status 
of the renowned scholars and through mastering it made them famous, like Sufyan, Abu Hanifa, Malik, Shafi'i, and Ahmed. It's interesting you mentioned Sufyan. Sufyan al Thawri, probably. Radiallahu ta'ala anhum, sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala anihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Any, uh, any comments or anything? Anyone has questions? Yes. Beliefs. Three obligatory acts of areas of knowledge was beliefs, actions, and abstentions. Right. Al-Atiqad, Al-Fi'al, Al-Tark. Anyone else? Anyone else? Nothing. That's it. Yeah. yeah, so this issue is, I don't want to get into it too much because it is going to cause controversy and it should be like, we have to be careful, like, confirm some things in the topic. But basically, the issue here is. There's a difference between a talisman and a ta'weeth, okay? Uh, talisman is like some random thing that's written on a piece of paper and maybe worn around your neck and it's known, it's like understood to be some sorcery type thing. For a lot of Western Muslims, especially people who are born and raised here, they don't really understand this. But if you travel the world, you'll understand. Like you'll see people who deal in these kind of things, black magic type things. And they'll have like, you know, if you want to get married to so-and-so, then take this thing and they'll give them something and they'll tell them like, wear this around your neck. And that would be a talisman. This is clearly, obviously forbidden and absolutely, totally unacceptable, right? Ta'weed is a different word. Ta'weed comes from the word for a'udhu, right? A'udhu means like, I seek refuge in Allah with this and this. So ta'weed would be something that you use for protection. And, you know, if someone wants to... Like all things in Islam, if we want to know the rulings on something, we look to the books of fiqh. Okay, let's see what the madhab say, see what the fuqaha said, see what the early scholars said. We don't need to turn everything into like a TikTok video. And um, so if, you, if we look in the books of fiqh, you'll find some, some disagreement on some kinds of this with certain conditions. So like say for example, someone has a child and the child is too young to know Ayatul Kursi. And they believe that Ayatul Kursi is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah, by His will, made some sort of protection in Ayatul Kursi. And so they write Ayatul Kursi on some paper and they put it around the neck of their child or something. This would be like a ta'weed. The hukum on it, I'm not going to, I'm just explaining what it is, right? Uh, and then you can go to. We'd have to sit with the books of fiqh and talk about it. Why I'm saying this is because there are some people, you'll find them, they'll automatically call all of this, not only haram, they'll call all of it shirk. And shirk is a step obviously further than haram, right? Haram is one thing, shirk is beyond haram. So there are, there are people, like legitimate people of knowledge. Historically, there's conversation on this issue of like, what is a legitimate ta'weed that someone can use? How would they do it? And so on and so forth. And then there's others who differed. And then there's others who 
there are people who went so far as to say that this is probably like borderlining on shirk or something like that. So it's a very controversial topic. Um, the reason I was mentioning it is because that, that was good that the translator put the Arabic there to distinguish. Because oftentimes when people translate, they'll translate both of them as talismans. You see the issue? So one of them is clearly forbidden and there's no conversation on it. One of them is a conversation on a portion of it. So if we translate them both to the same word, it creates confusion. So that's why I was saying that. Someone else had their... Is that you, Rami? I, I just wanted to comment on um, who the scholar was who said, like, um, you shouldn't, like, uh, a, a judgment shouldn't be done when you're hungry or angry. It's a hadith. The judge, like the qadi, the qadi shouldn't rule when they're angry. There have been studies in the legal system which found that judges in the courts give who who hadn't had lunch before their sentencing give harsher sentences than judges who had Subhanallah. Subhanallah. Now, Dr. Rami Mashal is a psychologist, correct? In training. <laughs> yeah. So entering and uh, in training, yeah. So he said there's studies actually that judges who didn't eat lunch gave harsher rulings uh, than judges who ate lunch. SubhanAllah. SubhanAllah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, just by experience we know that it's true, right? And this is one of the things in community life too. Even they say sometimes when you're dealing with shuyukh is that one of the responsibilities of the student is to know when to ask certain questions, you know, or when to talk to them about certain things. Because oftentimes, like, I'll, uh, I'll give an example, not for the sake of, you know, hopefully it's uh, understood correctly, not because it's about me, but like, you know, uh, 